0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello
1: podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today we're joined by Gillian Tet, columnist and US editor-at-large of the Financial Times. This episode comes from a live event we held with Gillian just last night, June 9th, in which she spoke to Kamal Ahmed, former economics editor at the BBC, all about what we can learn from the study of anthropology in our business and personal lives. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you are looking for a non-fiction book to read over the summer, this one should certainly be a contender. And we've put a link in the podcast description if you'd like to get the Intelligence Square discount on the book. But now, let's go to the episode.
2: There's this great Chinese proverb, a fish can't see water. We can't see ourselves clearly unless we jump out of ourselves. COVID has shown us so many of the failings of our modern political economy. And that makes me optimistic because you have to understand a problem just just want to start dealing with it.
1: Welcome, everyone, uh, to this. It's the evening in London. It's beautifully uh, sunny outside. It is the morning in New York. And we are absolutely delighted to be joined from New York by Gillian Ted. I'm very fortunate in my career to have got to know Gillian a little as working on economics and business for the Telegraph Group and then economics editor and business editor for the BBC. If you see an article written by Gillian, read it. If you see an event that Gillian will be at, go to it. She is one of the smartest people in journalism, and we're very lucky to have her here with us today to talk about her brilliant new book. Now, I've shared with Gillian privately that Gillian and I, and I'm sure many of us on Get Said Things, which are supposed to reform your life and make you see the world from a different uh, viewpoint. And often they're a bit disappointing, if we're honest. Whereas this one, Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life Actually Does What It Says on the Tin. So welcome, Gillian, from New York.
2: Well, thank you very much indeed, Kamal. And I must say that with an introduction like that, I can only go downhill. (laughs) But
1: thank you. It's really great to have you here. And it's lovely to be with Intelligence Squared again. Let's kick off as you do in the book. In a slightly unusual place, Soviet Tajikistan in 1992, the Kalon Valley, there's a gunfight going on. Just tell us, Gillian, why you start the book there.
2: Well, I start the book there because I went out to Tajikistan, um, which is a former Soviet republic just north of Afghanistan on the map. It's part of the map that I used to think was blank when I was at school in England in the 1970s and 1980s because I had no idea what was there. Um, and I was always very curious. But I was there because when I was a student at Cambridge University, I enrolled in a PhD program, originally planned to go to Tibet. That fell through because of Tiananmen Square. So by various accidents, I ended up doing my research in anthropology in Tajikistan. And when I arrived there, um, full with curiosity and a desire for adventure and wondering what I was going to find in that blank bit of the map that almost no one seemed to know much about... Um, It was initially, for the first couple of years, very peaceful, because it was the last period of the Soviet Union. But then, just after I left, having done my research in anthropology, effectively what I'd been studying became history, because the Soviet Union broke up. There was a very brutal civil war, which almost no one outside the region knows anything about. And I went back, actually as a journalist, to try and cover it. So I start the book, actually, in the capital city of Tajikistan, called Dushanbe. Um, And I was there with another journalist, Marcus Warren, wonderful guy from The Telegraph, who we were both very scared. We were sheltering from the gunfire. And he turned around and said to me, so what is this anthropology stuff? And I tried to explain it to him. And he kind of went, well, what the bloody hell is point of that? You know, it's like, why would anyone bother with this kind of stuff or words to that effect? And I guess I wrote the book because I wanted some 30 years later to try and explain.
1: And why, Gillian, did you choose to study anthropology?
2: Well, if I'm honest, I chose to study anthropology because I was gripped by a sort of insatiable sense of curiosity and wanderlust. Um, In some ways, it's the same instinct that prompts lots of teenagers to go off Euro railing or on backpacking trips or anything else, or prompts all of us to go off on holidays to somewhere that's different from us. And I just wanted to get out and explore the world. And I chose anthropology because it seemed to have this very adventurous ring about it, a bit like Indiana Jones or something like that for academics. But it really took me quite a while to realize that actually, I hadn't understood quite what was most important about anthropology, which is this fundamental principle of philosophy that if you try as a human being to not run away from culture shock, but actually embrace culture shock sometimes, deliberately try to immerse yourself in a different point of view and a different way of life, then you don't just get empathy for another perspective, which is so critical today when we live in a world that's both globalised and polarised, but you also find a way to understand yourself better. Because there's this great Chinese proverb, a fish can't see water, We can't see ourselves clearly unless we jump out of ourselves. So essentially what I was doing in Tajikistan was the first step of that process, which was going to a place that seemed incredibly strange, trying to understand a a culture which was not familiar at all, um, in fact really quite frighteningly different initially, and then setting out on a path not just get empathy for another perspective, but also eventually look back at myself and my own Western world more clearly,
1: too. I think it's interesting, Gillian, how you approach the notion of anthropology. I must admit, for me, and I know this is wrong, and you do tackle this in your book um, very interestingly. But anthropology has a sort of whiff of the colonial, a whiff of the let's have a look at foreigners over there and wonder about how can they progress in the best way to be more like us. How can the primitive peoples of X, Y, and Z? become much more like the West and this notion that there was this grinding wheel of history that took you in the end to the the heights of, frankly, Western capitalist democracy. Now, you've dealt with that in your book. Is there still a whiff of that notion of colonialism? And frankly, as you touch on, sometimes racism within that notion of what anthropology is.
2: Well, I think it's worth saying up front. Anthropology has a pretty shameful past um, in the 19th century, as, by the way, do most or many intellectual disciplines, because it, it emerged really out of the Victorian empire and out of a period of time when Charles Darwin's ideas were turning Victorian intellectual society upside down. And there was a search for the origins of human and a search for basically ways to prove that humans had evolved not just physically, which of course, what, what was Charles Darwin talking about, but also socially. And there was this very deeply held presumption that basically you could go around the world and rank societies on an evolutionary scale, depending on how evolved they had become. And then if you went somewhere like the Amazon jungle, you could find almost a crucible, the initial crucible from which modern humanity had evolved. Um, and in fact, one of the first anthropological institutions or societies was actually called the Cannibal Club. It was founded in, in St. Martin's um, Lane, I think, in, in London. Um, and it basically set about trying to, you know, peer at cannibals to see how, what made them tick. And much of that conversation, much of that approach at the time was incredibly racist. It was either designed to try and prove that white men, and it almost was men, were innately superior to everyone else to justify empire, and it was often driven by a desire to understand the natives or primitives, as they said, in order to convert them, trade with them, conquer them, exploit them, or whatever. However, one of the most extraordinary intellectual twists in any parts of academia took place around the turn of the century, when a group of anthropologists suddenly started doing something that hadn't occurred to the Victorians, which was getting out of their ivory towers and their colonial bungalows and actually going to live with the people they studied. And when they did that, initially quite by accident, in fact, um, they realized that the sense of superiority was actually wrong, that it wasn't the case that they were always more involved than the people they're looking at. In fact, in many cases, they could learn from the people they were with. So anthropology in the subsequent decades did a complete U-turn and started to champion the idea that humans are all human, We exist on a cultural spectrum of difference. It's not about cultural boxes, it's a spectrum. And actually, the real goal of anthropology is to try and understand human difference, celebrate human difference, and realize there's more than one way to live, more than one valid way to order your life. And actually, looking at each other not only shows us different ways to be and exist and solve problems and get empathy for each other, it also teaches us a lot about ourselves So it's a very peculiar discipline. Even today, I should say, some anthropologists still complain that the discipline is unfortunately white dominated, um, Western dominated, and it's still got a long way to go in trying to correct that. But the goal of cultural relativism, of trying to appreciate diversity, is really at the heart of the discipline.
1: That's very reassuring to hear how much change there has been. And you you, you go through a lot of that change uh, in your book. Two key things I really took out of it were nothing is strange and that listening and appreciating what it is you're listening to are two really fundamental skills that any modern organization, any modern approach to life really seems to need. Is That, that appears to me to be the big two takeout messages that your book is trying to convey.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, you might listen to what I just said and said, oh, well, anthropology is all about trying to be nice to each other and promoting world peace. Well, yes, it is to a degree. But <laughs> Nothing wrong actually, with that sometimes. <laughs> it is very <laughs> – heavens knows we need it right now, um, given how much polarization we have in the world, and I mean that. But it's also not just about saving the world or trying to improve the world or trying to help other people. It's also about trying to help yourself. It's a double win, or it can be, because the act of trying to make – The strange familiar, as anthropologists say, like in my case, going to Tajikistan and trying to understand it, and then flipping the lens and looking back at yourself like a Martian or a child or an outsider might do, trying to make the familiar strange, re examine your own life to see all the things that you normally miss. That double edged approach to life can tell you an awful lot about how your life and your worldview and your cultural patterns are really structured. And most importantly, about all the things in your own life that you're missing or ignoring. Because to go back to the point about a fish can't see water, we're so embedded in the cultural assumptions that we inherit from our own surroundings that we often can't see the contradictions and we can't see the things that we ignore. And one of the central precepts of anthropology is that when you go into any cultural society, whether it's an Amazon warehouse or the Amazon jungle, don't just listen to the noise, what people talk about, Listen to the silence. Listen to what they don't talk about. Listen to how, say, they might say, talk about something and then actually act and compare the gap. Because the silences are often the most revealing of all. And it's often easier to actually listen to the silences if you are an insider outsider. And that's very important for finance, for business, for almost any area of life.
1: Let's put a few concrete examples. You you have many, many concrete examples in the book about how business in particular, but also um, other big social trends can be helped by the type of approach you're discussing. Let's start with um, Genevieve Bell, who was an anthropologist who went into Intel uh, to help them think about uh, how they serve their customers. And a lovely story you tell around cars and um, the intelligent devices that car manufacturers put in their cars. And they missed a key thing, which was actually – People wanted to connect with their own devices. Just talk us through what Genevieve sort of went through with this idea that sometimes you can just be making the wrong thing.
2: Well, one of the things I say in the book is that basically a number of companies have tried to um, hire anthropologists to look at their customers, Um, initially, actually for reasons that weren't so different from some of the Victorian imperialists, which was You know, we are a Silicon Valley company in the West Coast of America, and we want to understand these weird consumers in places like India or China who aren't behaving like a 25-year-old bro coder thinks they should when it comes to products. So that was initial instinct. Um, But again, out of that, sometimes out of, you know, bad instincts come good things. Um, Out of that came this desire or this recognition that they had to basically be much more open-minded and much more tuned to listening when it came to seeing how tech could develop across the world. And to illustrate what I mean by social silences, one of the things that Genevieve did, and she was an anthropologist, an Australian, who had started her life in a very classic anthropologist way, actually looking initially at Aboriginal communities in Australia and then at Native American communities in America. Um, She then went out to look at consumers in, in Asia and she was looking at self-driving cars and also looking at the question of the tech inside cars. And if an engineer does that normally, what you do is you go into a car, you pull out the engineering devices, the tech, you talk, directly interview the consumers about it, you know, do you use this, do you use that, et Etc. Et and you study it in terms of tech. What Genevieve did was to go into a car, or rather go into a car park in Singapore and ask some people she was basically watching to take out every single item that was inside that car. And out came some of the things that you might label tech, but out came all kinds of other stuff, which people normally ignore because they can view it as rubbish or they view it as irrelevant or embarrassing or they just don't simply see it because we're all incredibly good at having tunnel vision and just screening out stuff that we don't want to see. And when they pull all that stuff out and laid it out on the map and it was seen as very embarrassing... Um, to the car owners, and it's always worth asking yourself, if something is embarrassing, why exactly is it embarrassing? It's often because reality doesn't meet rhetoric. When they laid it out, they could see very clearly that actually the consumers weren't using the tech devices engineers put in the car, which was supposed to actually enable them to do all this stuff with tech. Instead, they were effectively using their own devices and trying to sync them up or not sync them up with the car's existing tech. And so the engineers came, sorry, the anthropologist suggested to the engineers what you should be doing is trying to sync personal devices to the car's tech, not just relying on the tech itself. But you wouldn't have seen that without actually having the plastic sheet with all the rubbish in the car laid out.
1: It was such an insight I got from that. And there was something similar around KitKat, the fantastic story of KitKat's development in uh, Japan, and how by understanding Japanese consumers, Kit Kat became, I think you said, the most popular chocolate biscuit in Japan. Talk to us yeah. through that story.
2: <laughs> well, that's an amazing example of how dangerous it is to assume that everyone else in the world looks the world like you do. Um, and companies often make that mistake, um, and that hurts them badly. Um, there's a story about Merrill Lynch in Japan, which um, did a consumer poll to work out whether consumers recognize the bull sign that's its logo. And it was thrilled that it saw that there was sky-high recognition. And they thought, great, everyone knows who we are, until they realized that actually Japanese consumers associate a bull with Korean barbecue, not with a financial services firm. And there was a big issue there. Conversely, though, if you make yourself aware of different ways of looking at the world, you can actually see tremendous um, opportunities for innovation. And what happened with Kat? and I love the story because I grew up in Britain eating Kat with a tagline, you know, have a break, have a Kit Kat, brown biscuit in a red packet, kind of boring, but definitely brown and chocolate. Um, they went to Japan to sell Kit Kats, did okay-ish, but not brilliantly, lots of very popular Japanese brands. And then at the beginning of the um, first 21st century, they noticed that suddenly sales were surging in Kyushu in the Southern island, and they couldn't work out why until they realized that for a couple of months a year, Japanese students have started almost as a joke giving each other Kit Kats before they went to an exam because the phrase we shall overcome or good luck, which is kitokatsu in Japanese, sounds very similar to Kit Kat. So many companies would have just said, you know what, that's kind of really weird. Yeah, very weird. Bit of an accident, ignore it. What the Japanese manager the Nestle did um, was essentially say, let's try and use this. And they launched a campaign which essentially rebranded KitKat, not as a chocolate biscuit, but as a prayer tool for exams. And it sounds very weird. You're laughing. One of the things you should always think about when you laugh at something is why you're laughing. Because um, it's
1: brilliant, actually. That was what the great thing about this story. It's so brilliant, yeah. the insight. Well, yeah.
2: they launched it as a prayer tool, literally, because in Japanese culture, they, you have Shinto shrines, which give out these prayer tokens. Um and basically, that's a way of Omomori's of actually getting good luck. Um, they launched it as a prayer token for exams. And within a few years, 50%, 5-0% of Japanese teenagers were taking these Kit Kats into exams or using them in some way for good luck for the exams. And that's just, and then, then out of that came all other kinds of innovations with Kit Kat in Japan. They changed the color, they changed the taste. They took something which had been seen as British and turned it into something which was so Japanese with its flavors. You can buy a wasabi flavored KitKat that's bright green. that um, eventually, as we now know, the matcha green tea KitKat was re-imported back into Britain, the original home of the KitKat, as a sign basically of globalization at its best, where we're actually being innovative and creative and learning from each other. But you have to make yourself open to yeah. colliding you have with to the unexpected. First.
1: Yeah. Yes, and then be willing to pivot if if necessary to to do that. One thing that came across a lot, and as, you, as Hannah said in the introduction, I've just started a, a new startup about trying to do news in different ways for social media. And one big thing in the media, the industry that you and I both work in, is listening to audiences and responding to audiences and thinking about what it is that they uh, are telling you. And you do a great story about Primrose Schools, um, a company uh, that uh, had nursery services in Georgia in America. Just talk us through that about how listening to audiences can become vital to your success.
2: Well, I love this story because I'm both a parent um, who's relied on childcare for many years and that my kids were tiny, and also I'm Generation X. Um, And this is very relevant because Primrose had built a brilliant business in nurseries um, across South America. And then they noticed that actually parents were not but purchasing their services, even though they clicked onto the website to find out about Primrose and often went on tours. So something about Primrose was putting customers off and they weren't quite sure why. And so they had all this big data and they spent hours and hours looking over the big data. Um, but the problem with big data is it shows up correlation. It doesn't show causation. It shows what's happening, but not why. So they eventually hired some ethnographers, which is like an anthropologists who use this observational method, to watch what the parents were doing and what the schools were doing, You know, using the same technique essentially that I use in Tajikistan to study a village. And what those ethnographers realized was that the attitudes of the parents who were mostly millennial were subtly different from those from Gen X. And the Gen X people hadn't even noticed Because back to this point about a fish can't see water, we all assume that the way that we look in the world is kind of natural and inevitable, and everyone else should look at the same way. So just by way of one example, the Gen X has assumed that authority figures commanded respect and trust. And so if a scientist or a medical official told parents, this is the best way for your toddler to be treated throughout the day, then that would be attractive. And in fact, for millennials, the trust pattern wasn't vertical. They weren't trusting authority figures for advice. They were trusting their peers in a horizontal pattern. And so actually, they looked to each other much more. And they hated the idea of some expert telling them what to do. Or to cite another another example, um, the uh, Gen Xers like myself had grown up in an era where they assumed that having educational achievement was crucial. So they wanted little Johnny to be able to read at the end of their nursery experience, whereas the millennials were increasingly um, feeling that the future was so uncertain that they wanted their toddlers to be taught things like resilience and tolerance and interaction with others and stuff. Um, so anyway, once those once that gap was explained in it's expectation and understanding. They switched the offering, and it had a big impact.
1: Let's talk about some of the big themes that you deal with in the book. You're you're very honest in the book about um, uh, yourself. You have. Very few things that you've called wrong. You were prescient on the financial crisis and have won quite correctly many, many awards for the work you did on the complexities of finance and the worries that you had well before the 2007-2008 financial crisis. But one where you say that anthropology could have helped you was Brexit, of course, in the UK and Europe, a massive uh, and huge issue that has divided families, communities and people for many, many years. What was it about Brexit, Gillian, where anthropology could have helped you? Where was your blind spot?
2: Well, getting AnthroVision is a bit like a New Year's resolution to get fit or to stop eating chocolate (laughs) or drinking wine. You know, you can do it for a bit and then you, you know, slip backwards and forget. And then you suddenly realise, yikes, I need to do this all over again. Um, And frankly, you know, AnthroVision is a principle I try to live by, but I often forget. And I've often made mistakes and got things wrong myself. And back in 2016, because I was living in New York at the time, because I'm very much part of the, you know, educated, globalized elite, um, to be honest, Um, I had really become very blinkered in my own views in many ways. And I presumed that Brexit would be voted down, because that's what I thought, you know, should happen. And I was projecting my own assumptions on other people. Um, And when Brexit was in fact voted in, That was really big a slap in the face for me. And I thought after that, yikes, what else am I missing? And I then went out and tried during that year um, in America. I was um, a US managing editor for the FT then. So I was trying to oversee the editorial coverage. I um, went out and tried very hard in the subsequent months to kind of relearn the anthropology that I'd forgotten and just listen to people. And above all else, listen to social silences and listen to what people weren't saying and that left me convinced, um, as I wrote in a number of art, art columns that year, that actually there was a good chance that Donald Trump would win, even though most of the media were discounting him at the time, partly because um, there were tremendous silences about what people thought to do with Hillary Clinton, um, or what people thought about Donald Trump as well. Um, now, I happen to get that right-ish. Um, as I say, there's plenty of things that I've got wrong as well, and I am keenly aware that Listening to social silences is something that we have to remind ourselves to do constantly. Um, In some ways, if you've been successful once, if you've got something right, you're more prone to get the next thing wrong because it's so easy to stop listening.
1: And learning as well. It's really interesting, Gillian, as you say, realizing when you have had a blind spot and then thinking, how do I work my way through that? Because that has got to be a fundamental skill of journalism and many other businesses as well let's move on. Cambridge Analytica obviously has been um, a big story both in Europe and in uh, the US and you use it as a way of talking about data and the notion of the value of data and what actually how should we be thinking about the huge increase in data that we personally give over to big technology companies, how that data might be used or as some have claimed in this instance, misused during um, elections. It was Cambridge Analytica, uh, of course, who uh, were criticised for the way they drove advertising campaigns to certain audiences, particularly on Facebook. Using that anthrovision, what is it that we can take from the Cambridge Analytica story, but also the idea of data and what it actually means in our ways of relating to Businesses and in society.
2: Well, I've been fascinated by the story of ad tech, um, the use of big data analysis to drive persuasion campaigns for a long time, because originally, I mean, originally I was covering the financial system and the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, and became convinced that often the biggest dangers are when you have a tiny pool of geeks in command of a technical skill or knowledge that no one else understands. That's when you invariably have things spin out of control and people lose common sense. And I could see that happening in finance before 2008 in relation to things like credit derivatives and other funky financial innovations. And then I found that quite a few of the rocket scientists in finance were actually moving into Silicon Valley, into the world of ad tech, which is all about using algorithms to basically track human behavior. So I became very interested and, you know, tracked the whole area quite closely partly because really no one was paying much attention to this until 2016. And it was another pocket of life that was hidden in plain sight and subject to social silences. And then, of course, so I was talking to the Cambridge Analytica people and others really well before the election and Brexit. Um, But then, of course, the whole thing exploded. And in 2018, there was a lot of hand-wringing and anger about what had happened. Again, none of that should have come as a shock. It really was hidden in plain sight for a large degree, just like the derivatives crisis. But then, after all the anger subsided, it struck me increasingly forcibly that actually, in some ways, there was a big area of social silence in that anger, too, in the sense that all the noise around Cambridge Analytica was to do with the political questions. But the silence, which actually mattered just as much, if not more, particularly to the future, was around economics. And the issue is this. Um, People claim that Cambridge Analytica stole the data um, or took the data for free, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, for the most part, what Cambridge Analytica and every other single data analytics company is doing now still was essentially engaged in a barter trade. You give up your data in exchange for free services. And people use the word free because there's no money involved. So they took my data for free you know, or you're getting free email, free free Google Maps, free X, Y, and Z. But that's just, they only use that word free because there's no money. And there's a big problem today, which is that economists don't know how to talk about transactions which don't involve money. Um, Because almost every measure we use of the economy and everything we talk about and focus on is basically either expressed through monetary terms or transacted through money. And everything else is just kind of ignored. And there isn't even a word in English to properly describe this swap between data and services. Um, I use the word barter because in some ways it's the least bad term available. I mean, barter conjures up the image of cavemen sitting, sitting yeah. around swapping, you know, berries for cloth or something. Yeah. That's not how Silicon Valley likes to think of themselves. But actually, that's kind of what's going on as barter. And I think we knew, need to use the word barter to reframe the debate and realize that first of all, this transaction is huge. It underpins Silicon Valley. We ignore it in the economic models. We ought to be looking at it in the economic models. We ought to be looking at it when we try and work out what companies are worth in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. We ought to be thinking about it also in terms of monopoly powers and equity in the markets. And this is really my last point, is that when you start saying, well, actually, there is this massive barter trade going on, um and oddly enough barter hasn't disappeared from the modern world like people like adam smith used to assume it's actually become more prevalent um then you have to say well actually do consumers like barter would they rather do this with money i think the answer is no um it's pretty efficient most of the time maybe some consumers would like to but when services services have been offered that let them use um money to do these transactions they don't actually choose them usually so then you say, okay, so we have a situ- situation when we have barter. Maybe what we need to do is not abolish barter, which is essentially what people have often said, but actually improve the terms of trade of barter to give consumers more leverage in the terms of trade. Um, how do you do that? Well, I, I won't talk about it too long. Just say more transparency about the contract, more transparency about the duration of the contract. And above all else, consumers have to be given the chance to cut barter deals with anybody to create competition. And that means data portability. And the owners for that should be on the tech companies, not on the consumers. Just like in the financial services, banks are required to make it easy for consumers to switch bank accounts anytime they want to create competition. Anyway, that's a long story. But anyway, I think that the whole yeah, discussion about tech area. has been wrong. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's a really, really big area where some of the the big thoughts in your book I think can really help with with all of our thinking. I'm going to go to the audience questions in a second. I just wanted to ask you one final thing from me. You obviously wrote this book a lot of it through the covid pandemic, a thing which for us generation x's but for all generations has been, you know, will be one of the most remarkable things we've ever lived through. Um uh, you touch on it regularly throughout your book and you, there are some lessons there in your book. I just wondered On things like vaccine hesitancy, the sharing of misinformation, what is it we might be able to learn using the techniques you have in this book, which might be able to help us tackle some of those issues, which are often about the wrong type of communication?
2: Well, I guess my key message out of this is that one thing we learned in the opening months of the pandemic is that medical science alone can't solve a pandemic. You need basically medical science plus data science plus social science, because you need to look at audience behavior as well. That's so important. And it took a long time for people to realize that. I think they are starting to realize that in relation to vaccine hesitancy, which is an area which crystallizes this so clearly. You know, in a country like America, they have the vaccines, they have a way to roll them out. And yet there's a good chance that Joe Biden will miss his July the 4th target Of getting 70% of the population vaccinated because of culture. He can't persuade enough people to change. Um, Funnily enough, I have a column which went up just an hour ago on the FD website talking about this and pointing to Jersey um, in the Channel Islands as a place which has actually embraced behavioural science at the grassroots in tandem with medicine to try and get vaccination rates up. They've done a remarkable effort. So I actually think going forward, as we look to the future and try and build back better, we need to blend social social computing and medical science and all the other types of science, particularly when it comes to things like climate change and looking at how we're going to tackle that. And we also need to remember this very simple thing, which is that at the end of the day, we're all connected around the planet in a chain of humanity. When the weakest link breaks, we all suffer. We saw that with COVID. You can't afford to just ignore what's happening on the other side of the planet because they seem weird and going, Wuhan, who cares about that? Well, actually, we do now care. And in a world that's both globalised and polarised, we have to try and do a better job of getting empathy for other people and learning from them, not just to avoid horrible mistakes, but also to get inspiration about new ways to live in the future as well. And very lastly, I do think the pandemic, in a way, has turned us all into amateur anthropologists by default. Because we've all suffered culture shock in the last year by being forced to go suddenly work from home. We've all had to rethink our rituals and our social boundaries. And we're all having to do that again as we go back to the office or some of us go back to the office. So seize that opportunity of becoming an amateur anthropologist by default.
1: Let's, let's go to some of the questions, some of the excellent questions we've got. I've been, I've been looking at a few <laughs> of them as Gillian, you've been talking. So we'll go to I don't think I don't think I've got names here, but I've got um I've got sort of guests in the main. But um I hope I'm I hope I'm doing you justice with, with not naming the, the people who've asked the questions, but what good questions they are. So the first one, Gillian. <laughs> what do you think a Tajik woman would make of our society if she were to come over to the UK? This is a UK-based question. But maybe it could be for America as well.
2: I think that's a very good question. Um very good question indeed. And it's also something I've given Enough thought to, but I should do, and that's actually my failing very badly. I think that they would be struck by the level of um, atomization that many people um, feel—that you know we we don't have the same richness of community ties um, that um, are often found in the places like Tajikistan where I lived. There really was a sense of being really enveloped in a community. Um, I think that they would be, in many ways, awestruck by the degree of personal freedom, and of course those two elements go hand in hand, but I was often very struck by the fact that, you know, by the constraints of people's lives um, and by particularly the women, you know, who often had so much potential, which was crushed. um, I think they'd be very struck by the wastefulness in our lives. Um, In the Tajik village where I lived, almost everything was saved and recycled in some way. Um, And they were ingenious at using and reusing things many, many times, and the degree to which we just toss things around, toss, sorry, toss things away um, unthinkingly, um, and we take you know, all of these amenities for granted and waste and squander them um, is, I think, shocking. So those are some of my initial thoughts.
1: Another question that's come in, how can we look at our own world, or indeed any world, from a purely objective point of view? Don't we always carry our own baggage? How would, you, how would you approach that notion of we do have our instincts which are very hard to fight against?
2: You can't. I mean, we, nobody can ever be entirely objective. That's the that's reality. We're human beings. You know, there's this concept in anthropology called the di- dirty microscope or dirty lens, which is that, you know, we don't go around looking at the world like a microscope might look at a bunch of, you know, wiggling amoeba, amoeba on a test cube or something because, you know, our lenses are always clouded to some degree. But that doesn't mean that you can't improve the way that you look at the world. And so maybe another way to think about it is in terms of checks and balances. And the more checks and balances in perspective you can incorporate, the better the chance you have that even though you will still be subjective, it may be a better form of subjectivity than otherwise. And I think that's one reason why, frankly, these days there's a lot of chatter about diversity, having diverse workplaces, diverse teams. That you know, everyone has an eye roll and goes, oh my goodness, more do-gooding, another box-ticking exercise from HR, yada, yada, yada. Understandable. But actually, there's a lot of evidence showing that in an area like finance, having a diverse team and diverse perspectives to get these checks and balances actually is very valuable. If you don't want to think about objectivity, which I think is too grandiose a term, think about checks and balances.
1: Now, Gillian, you've you've touched there again on the financial crisis. And as I say, you are uh one of the, if not the most prescient journalists writing ahead of 2007 and 2008 about the complexities of the financial system being uh, having inherent dangers. Uh, a question here um, says, um, you used your anthropologist's lens to spot the weaknesses in our financial system sooner than most. Is there anything you can see happening now that might be a harbinger of change for good or bad in the financial markets at the moment? What should we be worried about? And maybe what should we be thinking? Oh, well, that's working better.
2: Well, short term, the inflation debate is obviously rearing its head again. Um, it's something which is quite hard to cope with because that involves another zeitgeist shift and cognitive shift, which is that you know, anyone who's under the age of you know not just 30 but 40 can't imagine high inflation. And anyone who's over the age of 40 probably can. But that's one area. Um, I think one area of social silence right now is around debt and the fact that, you know, it's very obvious that debts, many debts will just never be repaid. I mean, debt on a national level has skyrocketed in the last few years. And unless you believe in some near miraculous level of growth or raging inflation, um, they will never get repaid. And it asks, raises an interesting question. Are we just going to carry on indefinitely with massive massive nat- national debt? Um, Are we at some point going to have restructuring or some kind of debt jubilee? Um, There's a very powerful book by an anthropologist called David Graeber called Debt the First 5,000 Years, which points out that actually, you know, there's really two types of society or um, economic systems. You either have one underpinned by a currency which has a finite supply like gold, and so you can't have never-ending supplies of debt, or you have one where there's no capacity constraint, and when you have a system underpinned by um, no capacity constraint in currencies, the debts just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with bigger and bigger power imbalances until eventually either there's a social implosion or a massive debt write-off. And I think that point is still basically true. So I find debt a fascinating topic. Those are just some of the few...
1: That's really fascinating, and Gillian, can I just p- push a little bit on that debt issue? Obviously, it's a debate in many Western democracies. Isn't in the UK? We have a debt to GDP ratio of touching 100 percent now, and mm-hmm. we that wouldn't have been believable two years ago. But actually, our interest payments in the UK are lower than they were two years ago. Uh, Janet Yellen said in an interview with the BBC two days ago that it w- now was not the time to be considering the so-called balancing of the books. What's your thought, Gillian, on the debt position we find ourselves in at present and whether action needs to be taken now or is the notion that actually the debt situation for many Western democracies just has to be extended on a rollover basis for years to come? Well, if
2: everyone collectively decides it's not a problem, then it's not a problem. (laughs) There's only a problem if if creditors demand to be repaid in a hurry or lose faith in the government actually being able to repay. And there's absolutely no sign of that. So as long as governments can maintain, um, you know, the current, if not confidence trick, but essentially maintain um, trust in the system, then it's absolutely fine. But, you know, if you are going to be looking at an issue of debt, you need to start thinking about things like what is the origin of the trust in the system? Um, Because that's absolutely at the core of a lot of anthropology thought. Um, Back in 2008, to go back to current derivatives, it was clear to me that a lot of the trust in these incredibly opaque financial products was basically trust placed in the rating agencies and computer models, which were completely untested. And, you know, if trust in that ever cracked, you're going to have big problems. And so one way to see what happened in 2007 or 8 was that essentially, a lot of these new financial instruments were like sausages, in that they had taken loans from all over the place, chopped them up and put them into new casings. Just like if you're creating a sausage, you take bits of meat from everywhere, chop it up and put it into new casings. And if you buy a sausage, you trust that the meat is not gonna poison you. And if you find out that there's mad cow disease and some cows are poisonous, you stop buying sausages, all sausages. And that's sort of what happened in 2008 because people realized that some of the loans were turning bad. They didn't know where they'd gone. They realized the rating agency didn't know where they'd gone either. And so they lost faith in all of the financial sausages and you had a collapse in confidence. Now, if you think about today with central banks, at the moment, everyone trusts that central banks will keep repaying. Um, you know, so they, Sorry, they trust that governments will keep repaying these loans and everything's kind of fine. And they trust that central banks will support that. But if anyone anything causes that to crack, the implications could be nasty. And it's worth also contrasting The trust in currencies and in global debt markets, government debt markets, is of the vertical nature. People are trusting authority figures and institutions. Something like Bitcoin is trusting horizontally. That is more trusting the peer group. And again, you can say, well, if anyone stops trusting that the computer codes are sacrosanct, that again will fall apart. But it's very interesting how that trust mechanism has changed. And again, that's absolutely an area where anthropologists have a lot to say about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies.
1: Another question. The subtitle of your book is How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life. Uh, we all do life, but are there any other professional areas where you think anthropology would be especially helpful?
2: Absolutely, I think there are. And in fact we put the word business on because you know you always need to find a genre when you're doing publishing and things. And you know I spent my career in business journalism, so that seemed like the easiest genre to be talking about. But actually, I think it's this is totally relevant to law. It's totally relevant to medicine. I actually tell a story um, in one of my chapters about why you need to blend social and medical science in pandemics and epidemics. That lesson was first learned actually with Ebola in 2014, and championed, by the way, by people like Chris Whitty in West Africa. Tragically, I think it was forgotten in the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis. But it's being relearned slowly now, which is good, and needs to be remembered as we go forward with public policy and health. But there are other areas where, in fact, almost any area of public policy, this needs to be incorporated. And you know, the fundamental idea of trying to take, to use another phrase I use a lot in the book, lateral vision, not tunnel vision to look at problems, is something that anyone who's involved in government today should be embracing.
1: I think it's that notion, as I said, as we've touched on, is about listening and then changing your behavior from it but actually a question that touches on that it's going back to the primrose schools uh, one that we talked about which you do a section of your book on so the questioner asks going back to the primrose schools did they change the way they taught young children or was it all about presentation
2: it was a combination and this was i mean it's a fairly short example it was partly about the way they spoke to the adults It was also, so rather than sort of lecturing, um, they actually tried to listen and, you know, treat them much more as equals. It was also about, they realized the value of incorporating rituals and symbols into the nurseries because that built community and they hadn't paid much attention to that before. And they also put more stress on these points about, you know, teaching kids to be resilient and adaptable and prepare for a very uncertain world where they might be confronting all types of, you know, unexpected challenges, including, the rise of AI. And that wasn't something that millennials who'd grown up in the late last decades of the 20th century have been really worrying or thinking about so much. Um, And, you know, zeitgeist change over time, often in very subtle elliptical ways. And it's hard to see when they're changing because it occurs so slowly. But you need to be realized, you you need to be aware of how the zeitgeist might be changing um, and stay open to listening to it.
1: Now, we've touched on working from home. and One of our audience members asks, what are your views on working from home? And do you have any tips for people who have no choice at the moment?
2: Well, I, you know, my heart goes out to people who have been working from home in the last year with no choice and difficult conditions because it's been tough, and I know that. And it's been tough in many ways, partly because being locked down in a small physical space it's not just about being locked down physically. It's also about often about being locked down socially in your own little bubble and increasingly mentally as well. And I know myself and many other people tend to become more myopic when you're actually trapped or confined in a space. Um, but as we come out of lockdown, you know, what we really need to think of a lot about is what kind of experiences we have digitally versus in person. And there are some good things about digital experiences, um, you know, apart from the convenience you have through not having to commute Um, You also have the fact that you can potentially reach a much wider range of people. We can all be equal on Zoom. I know that from my own experience in talking through internal Financial Times meetings that for the first time ever, we're all equal on Zoom, irrespective of whether we're in the head office of the company or not. You can be more efficient in some ways. And, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence that if you are working in small teams, which already know each other really well and have social capital, to use a phrase often used by anthropologists, then you can actually transfer that quite well into Zoom because people know each other quite well. The problem comes when there isn't trust and or there isn't really good knowledge between groups, or if you're trying to get different teams to collide with each other. Because one of the things that's really interesting is that an an anthropologist who works at London Cass Business School, Daniel Benzer went into a series of Wall Street trading firms and London trading firms to look at how they were reacting um, both before COVID and after COVID, and he noticed that for traders in finance, one of the greatest benefits of being in person is actually having what they call incidental information exchange. Is a kind of accidental, serendipitous encounters you get between teams or bumping into people in the corridors that generates ideas. You know, it's a kind of straight comment to you over here suddenly. And that's the kind of stuff you can't really replicate on Zoom. And the other thing is that when we work in an office, so much of the information we absorb is not through what we think we're doing, i.e. our formal processes or algorithms and tools. It's through actually a process of what anthropologists call sense-making. You absorb signals from all over the place. And again, that's very hard to do via Zoom. So if we are looking at a future with hybrid working, or some people having to work from home, um, it's going to be very important to think about how do you atone for lack of incidental information exchange if you're working from home? How do you create that serendipitous collision or encounter? Or how do you get out of that tendency to become myopic and just widen the lens? Um, I don't have easy answers, but that's a debate we need to be having.
1: A lot of your books about um, listening, this is a a great question. One current issue of not understanding one another, in quotes, appears to be one social group believing that they understand the others so well that they would rather disconnect with them. What is your advice for such well-informed disconnectors, be they US senators or stubborn anti-vaxxers? That's from uh, Ying Jin. Uh, she's an architect at Cambridge University. Thanks so much. That's a very clever question. So you listen, you go and do your listening, and you listen, when, and you think, okay, I don't like that. I'm going to disconnect.
2: Well, I think the first problem is there isn't first problem is there isn't a lot of listening. No, and I haven't. I happen to believe often, maybe naively, maybe naively, but I happen to believe that actually a lot of prejudice, racism, hatred, comes out of ignorance and fear. Rather than a considered decision to actually listen and embrace and show a sort of you know willingness to be open and then decide to reject, but you know where there is that conscious decision, I don't want anything to do with people who are strange to me or scare me, you know. And by the way, that is a natural human reaction and instinct um, in every sense. You know, we're hardwired to you know shy away from people who seem weird to us. But you know, when that occurs, I certainly point out to people that in today's climate or today's world, global system. We're all so interconnected um, as a system, that we are constantly exposed to contagion from each other and from people we don't actually know about. And we've learned about that with the pandemic, where you know a virus in a faraway place that no one really knew where it was before or just ignored, has suddenly ended up affecting us all. But that same pattern is found in financial contagion, as we discovered in 2008, when you know what was happening in the Florida subprime housing market had a able- way of actually upending lives um, in the UK. Um, we find that with economic contagions. We find that with cybersecurity contagions, where people can hack into systems you know, so- somewhere on the other side of the planet and affect us. Um, I would suggest that as information flits around the world or misinformation, we have I- misinformation contagion. So one of the tragedies of the modern world is that we've become so globally interconnected that we're vulnerable to contagions, and yet our sense of awareness of each other or openness to understanding each other hasn't kept pace. And that's dangerous for everybody. So if you don't want to have, you know, embrace world peace or higher noble virtues about tolerance and compassion, if that doesn't appeal to you, just think about self-interest and survival.
1: Good advice, Gillian. Now, we've got a thank you, which is lovely. Thank you very much, Gillian, for a fascinating and motivating session. Um, You said at the start how important it was to experience other cultures, both to see something different, but also to get some insight on oneself and one's own culture. With, With the severe travel restrictions imposed by the COVID pandemic, and of course exacerbated in the UK by Brexit, the questioner asks, what do you think the implications are for the young generations of today?
2: I think that's a great question because I was part of an exceptionally pampered, lucky generation that was actually, when I grew up in the 1970s and early 80s in Britain, was encouraged to go and have a year off, encouraged to go and, you know, backpack um, or do, you know, interrailing or all those kind of things in Europe, um, you know, were sent off in exchange programs and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, that was part of the fact that I grew up in a middle-class, comfortable existence. So I was exceptionally lucky in that respect, um, but also because that was considered normal. And when I look around today that what's happening with teenagers and the fact they can't just go and backpack, they can't just go and travel or in my, you know volunteer to go and work somewhere else in the world as easily, um, they can't even go on holidays or go and explore. And there's this insidious sense of fear that's setting in in the younger generation. You know, I do worry. Um You know, now we've had seen this before in earlier sort of, you know, big national calamities where fear has basically come to dominate. Um, You know, I do think it's perfectly possible that post-COVID-19, the animal spirits, the adventurous spirits of wanderlust will return. Um, Maybe it's pent up and there'll be an explosion of people traveling. Um, But I do think that we need to consciously recognize how lockdown tends to make us myopic and find ways to counter that. Um, you don't have to travel to the other side of the planet to find a different culture sometimes just going to the end of your street walking a different path through you know through your neighborhood talking to people who seem different to you um, can be you know a pretty potent and powerful thing to do or going online and trying to quite deliberately tap into a different arena of social media or a different set of you know media and news debates than you would have done otherwise um, I'll going to give a, a tiny example from my own life. When I went into COVID-19 um, lockdown, I'm lucky enough to have a wonderful, amazing woman who's Colombian who cleans my house. And she lives in Queens across the river from me in New York. And she lived in the center, epicenter of COVID. And in fact, several of her relatives died. And her children begged me to take her in because they were working in the medical sector and couldn't, um, didn't want to shelter her because they were exposed. So I took her in for, she ended up living us for three months. Didn't speak much English. Um, and I actually originally asked her to come live, to work for us because my daughter's learning Spanish. I took her in and she was wonderful. And she turned up with a huge bag of corn flour and an iron griddle called an arepa and made us Colombian food every day. And she also turned on the television into Spanish language accounts and television of what was happening. And it was a tiny example of seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And this would be very good Spanish, so my daughter had to translate. And I suddenly realized that my English language version of what was happening in Donald Trump's America during COVID was not the only image or picture at all. There was another set of information circulating, which I hadn't seen or had access to. And it was a tiny gift, frankly. I think I got far more out of her being with me than the other way around. So that's a kind of principle I hope we can you know, all embrace um, as we come out of the pandemic and just open our eyes and try to learn and collide with the world and roam.
1: Now, Gillian, I'm just very aware of the time. I'll, I, hopefully the audience can stick with us for just a couple more minutes. And we've got a couple more questions, just quick fire, Gillian. that I'd just like to ask you. You touched on social media there. Again, Gillian. Tech, thank you so much for your talk and your book. Uh, question, how do you get social media users to listen and respect other points of view more? There seems to be more polarisation than ever.
2: Good point. Very, very tough to do. But three quick ideas. Firstly, we should be talking about cyber tribalism in schools and universities as much as we talk about cyber bullying and cyber hygiene and cybersecurity. That should be part of any curriculum. We should tell kids up front that you will be sucked into silos if you're not careful or ghettos. Um, Secondly, I hope and think that social media companies and media companies and tech companies to try and find ways to introduce tools that allow people to collide with the unexpected and actually find ways of trying to, um, you know, see different points of view from time to time It's tough because we're all customized to basically, um, you know, end up, um, you know, going into our own ghettos because we can choose who we want to follow and who we want to listen to. Um, but I think it's critical. And lastly, I'd uphold an idea, which, um, a friend of mine called Emily Casrill written about for the BBC quite a bit um, called Deep Learning. Sorry, Deep Listening, not learning. Deep Listening, which is really a set of tools that psychologists have developed um, to just try and pause and listen to people before you speak. And it's something that psychologists often tell parents to do with their teenagers, um, which is either said and done. Believe me, I have two teenagers. But deep listening, actually pausing to listen and make sure you've heard correctly can be very powerful. And I think some element of that has to be replicated in our political conversations, but also talk, talk to people online as well. Easier said than done. I often fail, as my own teenagers will say. In fact, I mostly fail. But the <laughs> aspiration is there anyway.
1: Yes, same here. I have t- teenage children as well. And Emily is a wonderful, was a wonderful colleague at the BBC. I would just, I would just on that point urge yes, people
2: to look up what yes. Emily's written, because she's done some wonderful pieces yes. about this on the, on the climate change issue and also um, in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, how to listen and how to ask open questions, not closed questions, I think is really important. Final question, Gillian. Are you net optimistic or net pessimistic as we move out of COVID about, let's talk just about Western democracies, otherwise it's too big, about the direction of travel? Has COVID left us with optimistic lessons or with a feeling of pessimism for you?
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, I am in wait-and-see mode. I'm probably net optimistic because I am, by by nature, an optimistic person. COVID has shown us very clearly the nature of the problems we face as a society. It's really been like that classic example of, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing shorts. COVID has shown us so many of the failings of our modern political economy. And that makes me optimistic because you have to understand a problem to want to start dealing with it. But what, what makes me pessimistic is it's not yet clear to me whether or not there's a willpower to actually tackle some of these problems, whether it's climate change, whether it's inequality, um, whether it's a kind of cyber tribalism you're talking about. So on balance, I am optimistic, but only just.
1: What a fantastic talk. Thank you so much, Gillian, for uh, so many um, great insights. Thank you for writing a great book, Anthrovision. Uh, how anthropology can explain business and life and thank you as well of course to intelligence squared we look forward to seeing you again very soon
0: what are you doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing right now you're also listening to my voice